0: The person who cuts me off in traffic. The person who continually backs out or changes plans last second. The person who roots against my sports team and is really obnoxious about it. The person who is passive aggressive, warm one moment and cold the next. The person who has 13 items in their cart at the grocery store when the sign says in the express lane, 10 items or less. These are some of the types of people that are hard for me to love. Who is hard for you to love? What types of people are difficult for you to love? If you were to make a list, who would be on it? You know, some of you, your mind initially it, it might go to a coworker who constantly criticizes you. Or maybe it's, a, it's another employee at your workplace who doesn't pull their weight and they, they don't do their their part, and it's so frustrating for you. Maybe what comes to mind for you is that neighbor you drive by their house and you see that political sign in their yard, and you just can't understand how they could have that kind of a view. And and if you're honest, when you drive by in your heart, you just kind of feel disgusted with them. Maybe what comes into mind for you when I say who's hard for you to love is somebody under your own roof. Maybe it's one of your children who knows how, I don't know how kids do, knows how to press your buttons when you are most exasperated and exhausted, and you love them, but if you're honest, it's hard to always love them. Who, who would be on your list? There's a, a, a quote from an unknown source I think about. It says, to dwell above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with those we know, well, that's another story. Loving people is hard. I remember Pete Scazzaro, he said, I would be a great Christian if it wasn't for other people. (laughs) You ever feel that way? Now, I believe that God's love is what enables us to love others. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. I believe that, that, that God's love is what enables us to love others. But that doesn't always feel true. Or at least that simple. I mean, it seems like in my life there is a gap between being loved by God and actually loving other people, because I don't do it very well. There's lots of types of people I don't love very well. There's a, a gap, and I don't think I'm alone. Many Christians struggle to love people. If you read surveys, there's a survey from Pew Research recently. It said that the main way non-believers think about Christians is as judgmental and unforgiving. And if we were to go around the room today, you would say, if you have some self-awareness, yeah, I don't love everybody. So if there's a gap between being loved by God and then actually loving people who are hard to love... How do we grow? How do we change? Can we? I mean, can we close that gap and become people who love others? And if so, how? What does that look like? Let me invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 9. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, the first eight chapters are about who Jesus is, exploring his identity. And then we have this famous statement that Jesus, you are the Christ. And then we get to chapter 9, and there's a pivot. And chapter 9 forward is really about what it means to follow Jesus. Not who is he, but what does it mean to follow him. And chapter 9 specifically, it's like the hall of failures for the disciples. It's like a compilation of all the ways that they mess up. And it gives me such comfort because I know I mess up. But, you know, this chapter, Luke chapter 9, it begins with the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah, they appear with Jesus. And Peter says, oh, this is great. We ought to build three temples. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. In other words, God says to Peter, my son, Jesus, is not equal with Moses and Elijah, And then the, the chapter goes on. The disciples try to drive out a demon in somebody and they can't do it. And then they start arguing about who's the greatest. And then after that they see someone else driving out a demon in Jesus' name. But he's not a part of their little group and so they try to stop him. But the chapter ends with a culmination that is probably their greatest failure. And it's a failure of loving other people, specifically people who are different from them. And I think this is our greatest failure, can be as well. So follow along as I read. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. As the time approached for him, for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now this phrase, taken up to heaven, it it refers to Jesus' ascension, but it probably also refers to everything that's going to happen in Jerusalem. That in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to die. He's going to be resurrected and he will ascend to heaven. So as that time, Luke says, as that time got closer, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Other, other translations say he set his face. Now the question is, how would Jesus go? He's in the north in Galilee. How would he get to Jerusalem, If you had Google Maps in the first century and you were to, you know, in Galilee, say, okay, I want to get to Jerusalem, it would say, well, go this way, this blue dotted line. Because, again, Jesus is up here in Galilee. He needs to get to Jerusalem, so you would just go straight there. That's the most efficient. He's not driving, so, you know, being efficient, taking the straightest path, that's a big deal. But many Jews in the first century did not go that way. For many Jews, they would go around and go this way, the way of the red dotted line. Now, why in the world would you do that? Why would you add miles and days to your journey and go this way? Well, a a little history lesson. In 931 B.C., King Solomon, the king of Israel, he dies. And when he dies, Israel is split into two different kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital city was Samaria, and then you have the southern kingdom, which came to be known as Judea, and their capital was Jerusalem, so the north and the south. And then in 722 BC, the Assyrians, who were the dominant world empire at the time, they invade the northern kingdom. But Assyria had an interesting way of dealing with their conquered foes. They wouldn't just take over, they would breed them out of existence. What Assyria would do is they would take different people groups that they'd conquered and they'd bring them all in to this new country that they had taken over and they would say, okay, this is the new people. And what would happen is that country would lose their national identity. They'd be intermixing with all these other people groups. And you can read about this in Second Kings seventeen. There's five different people groups who came into the northern kingdom, and that northern kingdom it came to be known as Samaria or Samaritans. Those were the people who lived there. Now, the Samaritans in the northern kingdom they eventually reclaimed their Jewish roots, but because of the intermixing with other people groups, they had significant not only racial differences from the Jews in the south. They had different theological beliefs. The Samaritans, they believed that the only books that were truly Scripture were the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what they believed was Scripture. So they they held that the historical books, all the other ones, the prophets, those were not Scripture, whereas the Jews in the South, they said, no, that's all part of Scripture, And then the Samaritans in the north, they said that the the way to worship God is on Mount Gerizim. But the Jews said, no, 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 the way to worship God is on Mount Zion at the temple in Jerusalem. And so you have these different racial identities and these different theological beliefs, which led to a palpable sense of hostility over the years. And then you have things like the Samaritans, they opposed the Jews when they came back and tried to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. The Samaritans, they opposed that repatriation process. So these two people groups, they hated each other, hated one another. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, I mean, you could feel it. And so in the first century, many Jews who were up in Galilee, if they needed to travel to Jerusalem, which you had to do four times a year at least, Many Jews would say, I will go around Samaria, thank you very much, because I don't want anything to do with Samaritans. Now, other Jews, they would go through Samaria, but they would spend the fewest number of hours they could in Samaria. So they would spend the night in the last Jewish city on their way through. But Jesus doesn't do either of those. What does Jesus do? Well, look at the text. It says this. It says... And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Jesus goes right through the heart of Samaria, and it's clear he intends to stay there. Now, in the first century, when you had to spend the night somewhere, particularly if you had a crowd of people, which Jesus did at this point in his ministry, he has more than the 12 who are with him, so he's got a big group. You couldn't jump on hotels.com. So what you did was you sent a messenger ahead and said, hey, can you make arrangements so that we can spend the night? Now, this had to have been uncomfortable for the messenger. This is one of those, hey, who wants to go do this? Nobody raises their hand. But somebody goes ahead to this Samaritan village to book arrangements, and let's see what happens. Look at the next verse. It says this, but the people there in this village, they did not welcome him, welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. now there's a few things going on here. Again, for Samaritans, they viewed Jerusalem as an illegitimate center of worship. And so it's known, it's even written about throughout history, that, that Samaritans would often try to deter Jews who are going to Jerusalem. They say, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. So that's going on. But But also, it's very likely that the Samaritans in this village, they knew something about Jesus as his popularity was growing, and this messenger might have even told them, hey, Jesus wants to stay here, and he's the, the Messiah. And so they say, no thanks. No way we're going to let the Jewish Messiah stay in our village. Part of their rejection probably had to do with Jesus, and we get the sense that it was Personal. Based on the next verse. Look at the next verse. It says this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this. So James and John, they're a part of the larger group. They didn't go, they weren't the messenger, but they're they're with Jesus and they see the messenger come back. And and the messenger says, Hey, Jesus, they they don't like you and they and they rejected you, and they're not going to let you stay there. When James and John see that interaction, how do they respond? It says, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Have you ever wanted to do that? Like the telemarketer who calls you for the 18th time. Like if you, if you had the ability, you would be tempted, right? But these guys were serious. And why, why, when, what, what inside of them would cause them to want to literally burn this village to the ground. Well, it's not just racial prejudice, although that's there. There's something else going on. And I learned about this this week. I did not know this. But in 1 Kings 18, many of you, you know the story, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, right? On Mount Carmel. Well, in a lesser known story, in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah calls down fire again, and this time it's in Samaria. And what's happening in that story is the people are making fun of Elijah. They're not respecting him. And Elijah calls down fire. So think about this. In their Old Testament, for James and John, they were good Jewish boys. In their Old Testament, God brought fire down from heaven to defend the honor of Elijah. And who have they just seen on the Mount of Transfiguration? They just saw Elijah. And God says, no one greater than Elijah is here. So think about it, if you're them. God brought fire down from heaven to defend the honor of Elijah. They say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to defend you and your honor? You see, part of what was fueling this for these disciples, it was not just racial prejudice. It was religious zeal, But Jesus' reaction, it it shocks them. We read in verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them. It's a strong word, rebuked them. Jesus does not rebuke the Samaritans for rejecting him. He rebukes the disciples. And we read this quickly, but how disillusioning must this have been for these guys? They're trying to defend Jesus and he rebukes them. Now it's interesting, we we, we know, this is one of the reasons why we know Elijah was in their minds because some early manuscripts include a verbal response from Jesus. In, In the verbal response, it reads this way, Jesus, he rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy people's lives but to save them. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus said. That's recorded in some manuscripts, but not most, and so it's not in our Bibles. But that message is completely consistent with what Jesus has said elsewhere in Luke. I mean, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus, he, and the disciples, they heard him say this. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. They heard Jesus teach this. And then in Luke 19, this is the purpose statement of the gospel. Luke 19, 10, we read this. Jesus, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not the Son of Man came to seek and destroy the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. So we don't know exactly what Jesus said that day in the Galilean desert. But we do know, based on the character and the teaching of Jesus, he said something like this. Guys, you are fundamentally missing the whole point of why I came. I came to seek and to save those who were lost. In the next verse we read, Then he and his disciples went to another village. They moved on. Now, what are we to take from this story today? This whole story is about the disruptive grace of God. Now, I don't know how many of you think about God's grace as disruptive, but that is exactly how the disciples experienced it this day. Jesus did not do what they expected him to do. And he, his reaction, it challenged them, confronted their self-righteousness, and it really called them to a different way of seeing the Samaritans in a different way of living. And so for us today, I want to point out three ways in the story that God's grace is disruptive. And this is where it intersects with our own lives. So first, the disruptive grace of God exposes. The disruptive grace of God exposes. You see, Racial prejudice and anger towards the Samaritans was inside the hearts of these guys, James and John. But until this event, you couldn't see it. It was underneath the surface. And then when Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans, it comes out, but it was already there. And here's what that means. It's possible for us to follow Jesus even closely, and have racial prejudice and have anger growing inside of us, to have it deep beneath the surface. That's scary to think about. A few months ago, I got a text from my wife that nobody wants to get. I had somebody coming to inspect our crawl space beneath our house. We had put a vapor barrier in seven years ago, and so they're coming to check it out, make sure everything was okay. And I'm at work and I'm in a meeting, and I get a text from Katie, and it says, There's a giant leak under our house. And then the next text says, It's bad which is not what you want to get. And, I, and so I rushed home. I, was, I actually remember I was meeting with Dan Miller in my office, and I rushed home, and I, I, I get to the, to the house, and I, I go under there, and, and my crawl space has been collecting water for days. I mean, I'm so thankful that I happened to have this guy come. The, the, the leak did not decrease our water pressure, and so we had no idea, but our crawl space was slowly collecting Water, and we had no idea. You see, that's exactly what racial prejudice or anger or judgmentalism can be like for us. It can be, listen, our crawl space of our hearts can be slowly collecting water, and we don't even know it. We're totally unaware of it. Now, you know, some of you, you hear that, and you think, man, there's nothing, there's nothing like that in my life. In my crawl space, so to speak. And I, I would just tell you, I, I wouldn't be so sure. Because think about it, if these guys followed Jesus for years, I mean, they spent their waking hours with him, what, 16 hours a day with Jesus, and they still had significant gaps in their life when it came to loving people. Who are we to think that we don't have gaps in our lives. And listen, we we live in a world of calling down fire. That's the world we live in. And don't tell me that that doesn't have an influence on us. I mean, if you, if you read the news, social media, that's what this culture is. It's It's calling down fire. Now, who is supposed to get the fire? That depends on where you're standing. You know, you read some headlines and... Some folks online, and and it's Republicans who are supposed to get the fire. They're the problem. Others, it's Democrats or public health officials or immigrants or pro-lifers or people who are pro-choice or people who are gay or people who are wealthy, the the, the uber-wealthy, or maybe it's the poor and the the people who are on welfare, or maybe it's religious fundamentalists. They're the problem or it's people who are irreligious, or it's the liberals who are taking our country down a road that we shouldn't be going. I mean, it goes on and on and on. We live in a giant storm of us versus them thinking. Don't tell me that that does not have an impact on us on the way we think and how we see people who are different. And again, we, we can follow Jesus closely. We, You can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can pray, and you can still, I can still have significant gaps when it comes to loving people in my life. And so the the first thing we ought to do when we read a text like this is be curious, is to say, huh, I wonder, is there somewhere in my heart where I feel that way, that In the right moment, I would say, yeah, I want to call down fire on those people. So don't dismiss it again. So the disruptive grace of God, it exposes. It brings out what's inside of us. And secondly, the disruptive grace of God, it confronts. It confronts. When the disciples ask Jesus about calling down fire, he rebukes them. He doesn't let it slide. He doesn't say, hey, good idea, let's table that for later. He sharply disagrees with them, probably publicly in front of this whole group. I mean, it couldn't have felt good to their ego. And again, listen, this had to have been disillusioning because these guys, they think they're right. And that's what religious zeal can do. I mean, we can really believe that we're right when we're wrong. Do you have a Jesus that can rebuke you? Do you have a Jesus who can confront you? I love what Tim Keller says. He, He says this. He says, only if God can say things that make you struggle will you know that you have met a real God and not a figment of your imagination." And part of how you and I experience the rebuke of Jesus is by reading the Word of God and the Spirit of God convicts us because, listen, if you read the Gospels, if you even just read the Gospel of Luke thoughtfully, it messes with your categories. I mean, Jesus is hanging out with all the wrong people all the time. Jesus is associating with tax collectors who were tools of this empire. He's associating with fundamentalists, Pharisees and prostitutes and Roman centurions and zealots who were violent. So the the point is, whoever you struggle to love, Jesus interacted with them. And when you and I read that, we're invited to say, wow, do I love people who are different from me that way? You know, Karl Barth, he... He notes that when we see an image of the cross, we would always do well to include the other two crosses next to Jesus. Because Jesus spent his dying moments associated with the lowest of the low, keeping company with those that the world condemns. Wow. See, whoever you have a hard time loving, whoever I have a hard time loving, I mean, understand Jesus died for them. And so the, the disruptive grace of God, it exposes, but it confronts. If we let it, it confronts. You cannot have a self righteous, judgmental spirit and not be disrupted by Jesus unless you're following a figment of your imagination. And so the grace of God, it exposes, it confronts. And then third, the disruptive grace of God transforms. Here, here's the good news. James and John, the sons of thunder, they became different people. It took a while, but they were transformed. These same hot-headed disciples, one of them would, would die for his faith. He was the first martyr that we know of. And the other one would be exiled to the island of Patmos, and he died in exile. And both of these guys went to their grave proclaiming the grace of of Jesus who loves and welcomes sinners. They were changed. It took a lifetime, but they were changed. And, and God can change us. It takes a lifetime for us to learn how to love. But we can be changed and transformed. Now, how does that happen? How do you and I change? A couple chapters after this, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks again to the disciples about fire. And this is what he says. Jesus, he says in Luke 12, verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, when a Jew would read that statement or hear that statement from Jesus, they would think divine judgment. Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. What does that mean? Look Look at the next verse. It says, but, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now, in Semitic literature, oftentimes the second statement is a restatement of the first. I believe that's the case here. So the first statement, I've come to bring fire on the earth. The second statement, I have a baptism to undergo. What's his baptism he's talking about? It's his death on the cross. In other words, Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on the earth, but I'm the one. He's going to experience it. You see, Jesus is saying to these disciples in the desert that day, oh, fire is going to come down from heaven, but not on the Samaritans and not on you. It's going to come into my heart. I'm going to take the fire. And I think for these disciples, that's what transformed them. That over time, as they saw Jesus die, his resurrection, over time, they began to realize more and more and more that Jesus took the fire that should have been theirs. And that's what changes you and I too. I don't think we can change ourselves. Not, not truly. I mean, at the, you know, at the base core level of who you are, I don't think you can make yourself a more loving person. But God can. In his grace, and he does. And it always begins with grace, with embracing God's grace. For you and for me to realize, we were the Samaritan town that day. I mean, don't you say, we rejected Jesus and said no thanks. And he still went to the cross, he died for us. And it's when we lean into that more and more that we're changed. And as we're changed, we become people who show grace to others. Jared Wilson, he he says this. He says, the amount of grace you show others is directly proportional to the amount of grace you sense you need from God yourself. This is where it starts. Because it is impossible to call down fire on other people in our hearts, in our minds, when we get this. That we were the ones shown grace. Love what Duke Kwan says, he says this, it's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly believe they need Jesus more than you do. You see, this all comes back to your heart and and to grace. That's how we're changed. And again, it takes a lifetime, but we can be transformed, just like these disciples. Now, the disruptive grace of God, it exposes, confronts, transformers. What do we do with this? How do we, how do we apply this to our lives? Let me, let me give you one simple idea to think about as you leave today, and it's make room for the disruptive grace of God. Make room for... For the disruptive grace of God. Are you allowing space in your heart for God's grace to expose, to confront, to transform you? Again, self-righteousness, hatred towards others, prejudice, judgmentalism, none of that can go unchecked if you are walking with Christ and if you're inviting him to inspect what's in your heart. So, so one way to apply this just very practically for all of us, and I'm going to strive to do that, do this in the coming week. In Psalm 139, David, he says this. He says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I invite you to read these two verses, Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and pray that every day this week. It could be in the morning, it could be when you go to bed, but you just pray that. And, and let me invite you, too, to not just think about that when you're in your lazy boy with your coffee in the morning and everything's quiet and you're, you know, you're spending time with Jesus. No, pray this when you're mad, when you read that text, when you see that news headline, when you see the behavior of somebody that you just resent, in that moment, we say, God, search my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. And you mean it. You sincerely invite God into that place when it comes to loving others. You say, God, point out the gaps. Help me to to see. And God, help me to be reminded of your love, of your posture towards the people that I'm tempted to call down fire on. That I would never say it out loud, but God, in my spirit, I, I intensely dislike that person or this group of people. God, would you help me to embody your posture towards them? And we can only do that by his grace. You now, on one occasion, a, a minister a pastor wrote to John Newton and this pastor said John I have a big beef with this other pastor I got an issue with him and I'm going to tell him about it I'm going to write him a letter I'm going to criticize him and so John Newton wrote back and we have the letter John Newton he said this to this pastor he said the lord loves him the lord loves this person you disagree with and bears with him Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness that you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He then will be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. What a perspective. And can you imagine if God transformed us into the kind of people with with others who don't share our values, who we disagree with, that we, we viewed them this way, as a kindred soul, as somebody that God loves. I mean, what if, what if we came to be known as Grace Fellowship Church and as believers in Christ, as people who loved with a radical grace that those who who disagree with us, that other people, the world would say, you know what? Those Christians, I don't agree with everything that they believe, but man, they sure love people. What if God made us into those kind of, of people? And the key is in the first part of that statement. When John Newton says to that pastor, and God says to us today, The Lord bears with you. Don't you forget. The Lord bears with you in all the places in your heart where you are hard to love. And view him, view her, view that person from a sense of the the much needed forgiveness that you have in your own life. It's when we take that on that we're changed. And It's only by God's grace. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy, God. A, a text like this, it, it, Lord, if we let it, I, I'm convinced, it, it, it confronts attitudes that can grow underneath the surface of our lives of resentment, of judging others, even hatred. And so, God, would you give us the courage to look within And the courage to invite you into that process to say genuinely, God, search me and see what's in me and and lead me in the way that you would have me to love others. We do thank you, Jesus, that you showed us grace. We, We rejected you, we were far from you, we were your enemies, and you died for us. So would you allow that truth to just further and further go into our hearts and to change us from the inside out. Oh God, we need you. We need your grace. And we thank you for it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.